Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is week one of Jules Verne, and we've got Castle of the Carpathians. Uh, you know, it may have inspired the topography for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, it very likely could have, and you know, not a lot of stuff happened in Transylvania and literature, and you know, I'm pretty sure Bram Stoker probably read this. But hey, uh, how about the fact that we're doing Jules Verne all month long? And after that, we're going to be doing the uh, Underground City, Mysterious Island, uh, that one about the moon and the one about the Antarctic of Jules Verne this month. We're probably going to have some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne and talking about Jules Verne's influence on literature and fiction and science fiction for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a cool, fun time. And you know what you should do? If you like the show, you should let us know by going to facebook.com, look for Black Clock Audio Tales or People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos if that's the one you like better. And let us know that you like the show. Review us, rate us, whatever. Let people know that we're out there. Share us. Tell people about it. Be like, you know what? The announcer guy kind of sucks, but if you skip ahead, probably about like, I don't know, I'm guessing about three minutes, you'll get to the story. You can start listening to it. And sometimes he pipes in for commercials, but hey, you know what? It's free. So you know what? Let people know it's free and that I'm not going to put up a paywall. And that... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, is a weekly podcast, but we put out enough every week that you've got stuff all week long. I ran out of stuff all week long, and then I remembered, oh shoot, I've got that post stuff that I edited last week that's coming up today, and then I was like, awesome. And then I remembered I also had some unspooled to listen to, but I'll talk about that. No, no I won't. I don't talk about other podcasts on my podcast. Anyway, so thank you for listening to this podcast. And also, I do talk about other podcasts. You can check out um, Dave's Corner of the Universe bits and segments that we do here. Hopefully sooner than later, we'll have Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And we've got Black Clock Audio Tales, which you're listening to right now. We do special segments from time to time with folks like Ken Hyde or Andrew Migliori or Andrew Grace or... um, Let's see, sometimes we get David Heath to talk about stuff, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get uh, Scott Glancy. We've had Rossi Lockhart from Word Horde, and we've even had Rodney Anonymous from the Dead Milkman on the show. So check us out, pgttcm.com, for all the back episodes. Here we go. Chapter 4 In a few minutes, the news brought by the shepherd had spread in the village. Master Colts, carrying the precious telescope, went back into his house followed by Nick Deck and Miriota. There now remained on the terrace only Frick, surrounded by about twenty men, women, and children, among whom were a few Saganes who were not the least excited among the worst population. They surrounded Frick, they bombarded him with questions, and the shepherd replied with the superb importance of a man who had just seen something quite extraordinary. Yes, he repeated, the castle was smoking, it still smokes, and it will smoke until not one stone of it remains on another. But who could have lighted the fire? asked an old woman with her hands clasped. The Chort, said Frick, giving the devil the name he is known by in the district. And he is the rascal who knows how to light a fire much better than how to put it out. And at that reply, everyone looked to try and find the smoke on top of the dungeon. In the end, most of them affirmed they could distinguish it perfectly, although it was quite invisible at that distance. The effect produced by this singular phenomenon exceeded everything imaginable. 
It is necessary to insist on this point. The reader must put himself in the place of the people of worst, and he will not be astonished at what follows. I do not ask him to believe in the supernatural, but to understand that this ignorant people believed in it without reservation. To the mistrust inspired by the castle of the Carpathians, which up to then was supposed to be deserted, was to be added the terror that it now seemed to be inhabited, and by such beings, good heavens! There was at worst a meeting place frequented by drinkers, and even beloved by those who, without drinking, delighted in talking over matters at the close of the day, the latter in small numbers, be it understood. This place, open to all, was the chief, or rather the only, inn in the village. Who was the proprietor of this inn? A Jew of the name of Jonas, a fine fellow of about sixty, of pleasing physiognomy, although rather Semitic, with black eyes, hooked nose, long lip, smooth hair, and the traditional beard. Obsequious and obliging, he willingly lent little sums to one or other, without being too particular as to security, nor too usurious as regards interest although he expected to be paid on the dates fixed by the borrower. Would to heaven that the Jews in Transylvania were always as accommodating as the innkeeper of worst. Unfortunately, this excellent Jonas was an exception. His fellows in religion, his brethren by profession, for they are all innkeepers selling drinks and groceries, carry on the trade of moneylenders with a bitterness that is not promising for the future of Romanian peasant. Gradually, the land is passing from the native to the foreigner. In default of being repaid their advances, the Jews are becoming the proprietors of the finest farms mortgaged to their advantage. And if the promised land is not to be that of Israel, it may one day make its appearance in the maps of Transylvanian geography. The inn of the King Matthias, such is its name, occupies one of the corners of the terrace which crosses the main street of Worst and is immediately opposite the Biro's house. It is an old structure, half wood, half stone, much patched in places, but a good deal covered with verdure and of very attractive appearance. It consists only of the ground floor, with a glass door giving access to the terrace. Inside, one first entered a large room furnished with tables for the glasses and benches for the drinkers, with a sideboard in varnished oak on which gleamed the dishes, pots, and bottles, and a counter of black wood, behind which Jonas stood ready for his customers. Light was obtained from two windows which were in the wall facing the terrace, and two others opposite each other in the outer walls. Of these, one was veiled by a thick curtain of climbing and hanging plants which screened the outer view and only allowed a little light to pass, while the other, when opened, gave an extensive view over the lower valley of the Vulcan. A few feet below it rolled the tumultuous waters of the Naiad Torrent. On one side, the torrent descended the slopes of the range from its rise on the plateau of Wargal, which was crowned by the castle buildings. On the other, abundantly fed by the mountain streams, even during summertime it flowed along the Wallachian Sill, which absorbed it in its course. On the right, adjoining a large room, a half dozen of small rooms were enough to accommodate the few travelers who, before crossing the frontier, desired to rest at the King Matthias. They were of a good welcome at moderate charges, from an attentive and obliging landlord who was always well provided with good tobacco, which he bought in the best traffics of the neighborhood. As for Jonas himself, he occupied a narrow attic, the old-fashioned window of which patched the thatch with flowers and looked out on the terrace. In this inn, on this very night of the 29th of May, there were gathered all the wise heads of Worst. Master Colts, McEaster Hermit, the forester Nick Deck, a dozen of the chief inhabitants, and also the shepherd Frick, who was not the least important of these personages. Dr. Patak was absent from this meeting of notables. Sent for in all haste by one of his old patients who was only waiting for him in order to pass away into another world, he had agreed to come to the inn as soon as his attentions were no longer necessary to the defunct. While waiting for the doctor, the company talked about the serious event of the day, 
but they did not talk without eating or drinking. To the hungry, Jonas offered that kind of hasty pudding, or maize pudding, known under the name of mammalia, which is not at all disagreeable when taken with new milk. To the others he offered many a small glass of those strong liqueurs, which rolled like pure water down Romanian throats, or schnapps, costing about a farthing a glass, and more particularly, racchio, a strong spirit from plums, of which the consumption is considerable among the Carpathians. It should be mentioned that the landlord Jonas, it was the custom of the inn, only served the customers when they were sitting down, as he had observed that seated customers consume more copiously than consumers on their feet. This evening matters looked promising, for all the seats were full, and Jonas was going from one table to another, jug in hand, filling up the glasses that were constantly empty. It was half past eight in the evening. They had been talking since dusk without deciding what they should do. But they were agreed on one point, and that was that if the castle of the Carpathians was inhabited by the unknown, it had become as dangerous to worst as a powder magazine would be at the gate of town. It is a serious affair, said Master Colts. Very serious, said the McEaster, between two puffs of his inseparable pipe. Very serious, said the company. There is no doubt, said Jonas, that the evil repute of the castle does much harm to the country round about. And now, said McGeester Harmon, there is the thing also. Strangers do not come here often, said Master Colts with a sigh. And now they will not come at all, added Jonas, sighing in unison with the bureau. Some of the people will be going away, said one of the drinkers. I shall go first of all, said the peasant from the outskirts, and I will go as soon as I can sell my vines. For which you will find no buyers, old man, said the tavern keeper. One can see what these worthies were driving at in their talk. Amid the personal terrors occasioned them by the castle of the Carpathians, rose the anxiety for their interests so regrettably injured. If there were no more travelers, Jonas would suffer in the revenue of his inn. If there were no more strangers, Master Colts would suffer in the receipt of the tolls, which gradually grew less. If there were no more buyers, the owners could not sell their lands even at a low price. That would last for years, and a situation, already very unsatisfactory, would become worse. In fact, if it had been so while the spirits of the castle had kept out of sight, what would it be now that they had manifested their presence by material acts? Then the shepherd, Frick, thought he ought to say something, but in a hesitating sort of way. Perhaps we may have to... What? asked Master Colts. Go there, Master, and see. The company looked at each other and then lowered their eyes, and the question remained without reply. Then Jonas, addressing Master Colts, took up the word in a firm voice. Your shepherd, he said, has just pointed out the only thing we can do. Go to the castle? Yes, my good friends, said the innkeeper. If there is a smoke from the dungeon chimney, it is because there is a fire. And if there is a fire, it must have been lighted by a hand. A hand, at least a claw, said an old peasant, shaking his head. Hand or claw, said the innkeeper, what does it matter? We must know what it means. It is the first time the smoke had come out of the castle chimneys since Baron Rodolph of Gortz left it. But there might have been smoke without anybody noticing it, said Mr. Kells. That I will never admit, said McGeester Hermit suddenly. But it might be, replied the bureau, if we had not got the telescope to watch what was happening at the castle. It was well said. The phenomenon might have happened frequently and escaped even the shepherd Frick, good as were his eyes. But anyhow, whether the said phenomenon were recent or not, it was certain that human beings were actually living at the castle of the Carpathians, and this fact constituted an extremely disturbing state of things for the inhabitants of Vulcan and worse. Then McGeester Hermit made this remark in support of his belief. Human beings, my friends, you allow me not to believe it. Why should human beings think of taking refuge in the castle, and for what reason? And how did they get there? What do you think these intruders are, then? exclaimed Master Colts. Supernatural beings, said McGeester Hermit in an opposing voice. 
Why should they not be spirits, goblins, perhaps even those dangerous lamias which present themselves under the form of beautiful women? During this enumeration, every look was directed toward the door, toward the windows, or toward the chimney of the big saloon of the King Matthias. And in truth, the company asked themselves if they were not about to see one or another of those phantoms successively evoked by the schoolmaster. However, my good friend, said Jonas, if these beings are of that kind, I don't understand why they should have lighted the fire, for they have no cooking to do. And their sorceries, said the shepherd, do you forget that they want a fire for their sorceries? Evidently, said the magister in a tone which admitted of no reply. The reply was accepted without protest, and in the opinion of all, there could be no doubt that it must be supernatural and not human beings who had chosen the castle of the Carpathians as the scene of their operations. Up to this point, Nick Deck had taken no part in the conversation. He had been content to listen attentively to what was said by one and the other. The old castle with its mysterious walls, its ancient origin, its feudal appearance had always inspired him with as much curiosity as respect. And being very brave, although he was as credulous as any inhabitant of Verst, he had more than once even manifested a desire to enter the old stronghold. As may be imagined, Miriota had obstinately set her face against so adventurous a project. He might have such ideas when he was free to do as he liked, but an engaged man was no longer his own master, and to embark in such adventures was the act of a madman, not of a lover. But notwithstanding her prayers, the lovely girl was always afraid that the forester would make some such attempt. What reassured her a little was that Nick Deck had not formally declared that he would go to the castle, for no one had sufficient influence over him to stop him, not even herself. She knew him to be an obstinate, resolute man who would never go back on his promise. If he said a thing, the thing was as good as done, and Miriota would have been all anxiety had she suspected what the young man was thinking about. However, as Nick Deck said nothing, the shepherd's proposition received no reply. Visit the castle of the Carpathians now that it was haunted? Who would be mad enough to do that? And all those present discovered the best reasons for not doing anything. The bureau was no longer of an age to venture over so rough a road. The Magister had to look after his school. Jonas had to look after his inn. Frick had his sheep to attend to, and the other peasants had to busy themselves with their cattle and their pastures. No, not one would venture, all of them saying to themselves, he who dares go to the castle may never come back. At this moment, the door suddenly opened to the great alarm of the company. It was only Dr. Patak, and it would have been difficult to mistake him for one of those bewitching lamias of whom McGeester Hermit had been speaking. His patient being dead, which did honor to his medical acumen if not to his talent, Dr. Patak had hurried on to the meeting at the King Matthias. Here he is at last, said Master Colts. Dr. Patak hastily shook hands with everybody, much as if he were distributing drugs and, in a somewhat ironical tone, remarked, Then, my friends, it is the castle, the castle of the chort you are busy about. Oh, you cowards. But if the old castle wants to smoke, let it smoke. Does not our learned hermit smoke and smoke all day? Really, the whole country is in a state of terror. I have heard of nothing else during my visits. Somebody has returned and made a fire over there. And why not if they have got a cold in the head? It would seem that it freezes in the month of May in the rooms of the dungeon, unless there is some bread cooking for the other world. I suppose they want food in that place. That is, if they come to life again? Perhaps they are some of the heavenly bakers who have come to start their oven. And so on in the series of jests that were much to the distaste of the worst people, who made no attempt to stop him. At last the bureau asks, And so, doctor, do you attach no importance to what is taking place at the castle? None, Master Colts. Have you never said you were ready to go there, if anyone dared you to do so? I, answered the doctor, with a certain look of annoyance at anyone reminding him of his words. Yes, have you not said so much more than once, asked the Magister? I have said so, certainly, and there's no need to repeat it. But there is need to do it, said Hermod. To do it? 
Yes, and instead of daring you, we are content to ask you to do it, added Master Colts. You understand, my friends, certainly, such a proposal. Well, since you hesitate, said the innkeeper, we want to ask you. We will dare you. Dare me? Yes, doctor. Jonas, said the bureau, you are going too far. There is no need to dare, Patak. We know he is a man of his word. What he has said, he will do, if only to render a service to the village and to the whole country. But this is serious. You want me to go to the castle of the Carpathians, said the doctor, whose red face had become quite pale. You cannot get out of it, said Master Colts. I beg you, good friends, I beg you to be reasonable, if you please. We are reasonable, said Jonas. Be just, then. What is the use of my going there? What shall I find? A few good fellows have taken refuge in the castle, who are doing no harm to anyone. Well, replied Nicky Hermit, if they are good fellows, you have nothing to fear from them. It will be an opportunity for you to offer them your services. If they need them, said Dr. Patak, if they send for me, I should not hesitate to go to the castle. But I do not go without an invitation, and I do not pay visits for nothing. We will pay you, said Master Colts, and at so much an hour. Who will pay you? I will. We will, at any rate you like, replied the majority of Jonas's customers. Evidently, in spite of his bluster, the doctor was as big a coward as the rest of worst. But after having posed as a superior person, after having ridiculed the popular legends, he found it difficult to refuse the service he was asked to render. But to go to the castle of the Carpathians, even if he were paid for his journey, was in no way agreeable to him. He therefore endeavored to show that the visit would produce no result, that the village was covering itself with ridicule and sending him to explore the castle. But his arguments hung fire. "'Look here, doctor,' said McGeester Hermit. "'It seems to me that you have absolutely nothing to fear. You do not believe in spirits.' "'No, I do not believe in them.' "'Well, then, if they are not spirits who have returned to the castle, they are human beings who have taken up their quarters there.' and you can get on all right with them. The schoolmaster's reasoning was logical enough. It was difficult to get out of. Agreed, Hermit, said the doctor, but I might be detained at the castle. Then you will be welcome there, said Jonas. Certainly, but if my absence is prolonged, and if someone in the village wants me... We are all wonderfully well, said Master Colts, and there is not a single invalid in worst, now your last patient has taken his departure for the other world. Speak frankly, said the inkerber. Will you go? No, I will not, said the doctor. Oh, it is not because I am afraid. You know I have no faith in these sorceries. The truth is, it seems to me absurd, and I repeat, ridiculous. Because a smoke has appeared at the dungeon chimney, a smoke which may not be a smoke, certainly not. I will not go to the castle of the Carpathians. I will go. It was the forester, Nick Deck, who had suddenly joined in the conversation. You, Nick, exclaimed Master Colts. I, but on condition, Patak goes with me. This was a direct thrust for the doctor, who gave a jump as if to avoid it. You think that, Forrester, said he, I, to go with you? Certainly. It will be a pleasant expedition for both of us, if it is of any use. Look here, Nick, you know well enough there is no road to the castle. We shall not get there. I have said I will go to the castle, replied Nick Deck, and as I have said so, I will go. But I have not said so, exclaimed the doctor, struggling as if someone had gripped him by the collar. But you have, said Jonas. Yes, yes, replied the company unanimously. The doctor, pressed on all sides, did not know how to escape. Ah, how much he regretted that he had so imprudently committed himself by his rhodomontandes. Never had he imagined that they would have been taken seriously, or that he would have to account for them in person. And now there was no chance of escape without becoming the laughingstock of Verst. And in all the Vulcan district they would badger him unmercifully. He decided to accept the inevitable with good grace. Well, since you wish it, he said, I will go with Nick Deck, although it will be useless. Well done, Patak, shouted all the company at the King Matthias. 
"'And when shall we start, Forrester?' asked Dr. Patak, affecting to speak in a tone of indifference, which poorly disguised his paltoonery. "'Tomorrow morning,' said Nick Deck. These words were followed by a long silence, which showed how real were the feelings of Master Colts and the others. The glasses were empty, so were the pots, but no one rose. No one thought of leaving the place although it was late, nor of returning home. It occurred to Jonas there was a good opportunity for serving another round of schnapps and rakia. Suddenly a voice was heard distinctly amid the general silence, and these words were slowly pronounced. Nicholas Deck, do not go to the castle tomorrow. Do not go there, or misfortune will happen to you. Who was it said this? Whence came the voice which no one knew, and which seemed to come from an invisible mouth? It could not be a voice from a phantom, a supernatural voice, a voice from another world. Terror was at its height. The men dared not look at one another. They dared not even utter a word. The bravest, and that evidently was Nick Deck, endeavored to discover what it all meant. It was evident that the words had been uttered in the room. The forester went up to the box and opened it. Nobody. And then looked into the rooms which opened into the saloon. Nobody. He opened the door, went outside, ran along the terrace to the main street of Worst. Nobody. A few minutes afterwards, Master Colts, Magister Hermit, Dr. Patak, Nick Deck, Shepherd Frick, and the others had left the inn and his keeper Jonas, who hastened to double-lock the door. That night, as if it had been menaced by some apparition, the inhabitants of Worst strongly barricaded themselves in their houses. Terror reigned in the village. End of chapter 4 Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey Chapter 5 In the morning, Nick Deck and Dr. Patak prepared to start at 9 o'clock. The forester's intention was to ascend the Vulcan and take the shortest way to the suspicious castle. After the phenomenon of the smoke of the dungeon, after the phenomenon of the voice heard in the saloon of the King Matthias, we need not be astonished at the people being as if deranged. Some of the Seguins already spoke of leaving the district. During the night, nothing else had been spoken of at home, and in a low voice. Could there be any doubt that it was the Chort who had spoken in so threatening a way to the young forester? At Jonas's inn there had been about fifty people, and these the most worthy of belief, who had all heard the strange words. To suppose that they had all been duped by some illusion of the senses was inadmissible. There could be no doubt that Nick Deck had been formally warned that misfortune would overtake him if he persisted in his intention of visiting the castle of the Carpathians. And yet the young forester was preparing to leave Worst, and without being forced to do so. In fact, whatever advantage Master Colts might gain in cleaning up the mystery of the castle, whatever interest the village might have in knowing what was taking place, a powerful effort had been made to get Nick Deck to go back on his word. Weeping and in despair, with her beautiful eyes wet with tears, Miriota had besought him not to persist in this adventure. After the warning given by the voice, it was a serious matter. It was a mad adventure. On the eve of his marriage, Nick Deck was about to risk his life in the attempt, and his betrothed clung to his knees to prevent him, but all in vain. Neither the objurations of his friends nor the tears of Miriota had any effect on the young forester. And no one was surprised at it. They knew his indomitable character, his tenacity, his obstinacy, if you will. He had said he would go to the castle of the Carpathians, and nothing would stop him. Not even the threat which had been addressed straight to him. Yes, he would go to the castle even if he never returned. When the hour of the parting came, Nick Deck pressed Miriota for the last time to his heart, while the poor girl made the sign of the thumb and two first fingers, according to Romanian custom, which is an emblem of the Holy Trinity. And Dr. Patak? Well, Dr. Patak had tried to get out of it, but without success. 
All that could be said, he had said. All the objections imaginable, he had mentioned. He tried to entrench himself behind the formal injunction not to go to the castle, which had been so distinctly heard. That menace only concerns me, said Nick Deck. But if anything happens to you, Forrester, said Dr. Patak, shall I get away without injury? Injury or not, you have promised to come with me to the castle, and you will come because I am going. Seeing that nothing would prevent his keeping his promise, the people of Worst had resolved to help the Forrester. It was better that Nick Deck should not enter alone on this affair, and, much to his disgust, the doctor, feeling that he could not go back, that it would compromise his position in the village, that it would be a disgrace for him to go back after all his boastings, resigned himself to the adventure with terror in his soul, and fully resolved to profit by the least obstacle on the road to make his companion turn back. Nick Deck and Dr. Patak set out, and Master Colts, Magister Hermit, Frick, and Jonas accompanied them up to a turning out on the main road, where they stopped. Here, Master Colts for the last time brought his telescope, which he was never without, to bear on the castle. There was now no smoke from the dungeon chimney, and it would have been easy to see it on the clear horizon of a beautiful spring morning, were they to conclude that the guests, natural or supernatural, of the castle had vanished on finding that the forester took no heed of their threats. Some of them thought so, and therein appeared a decisive reason for bringing the adventure to a satisfactory termination. And so they all shook hands, and Nick Deck, dragging the doctor away with him, disappeared round the hill. The young forester was in full visiting costume, laced cap with large peak, belted vest with a cutlass in his sheath, baggy trousers, iron-shod boots, cartridge belt at his waist, and long gun on his shoulder. He had the deserved reputation of being a first-rate shot, and in default of ghosts, it was as well to be prepared for robbers or even bears with evil intentions. The doctor had armed himself with an old flint pistol, which missed fire three times out of five, he also carried a hatchet which his companion had given him in case it was necessary to cut a way through the thick underwoods of Plaza. He wore a large country hat and was buttoned up in a thick traveling cape and shod with big iron-soled boots, but this heavy costume would not have stopped him from running away if opportunity presented itself. Both he and Nick Deck carried a few provisions in their wallets so as to prolong the exploration if necessary. After leaving the by-road, Nick Deck and the doctor went along the right bank of the Nyad for a few hundred yards. Had they followed the road which winds through the valleys, they would have gone too far to the westward. It was a pity they could not follow the river and thereby reduce their distance by a third, for the Nyad rises in the folds of the Orgal Plateau. But though it was practicable at first, the bank became eventually so deeply cut into by ravines and barbed with rocks that progress along it was impossible even to pedestrians. They had, therefore, to bear way obliquely to the left so as to return to the castle after traversing the lower belt of the place of forests and this was the only side on which the castle was approachable from where they were. When it had been inhabited by Count Rodolphe de Gortz, the communication between the village of Verst, the Vulcan Hill, and the Valley of Sill had been through a gap which had been opened in this direction. But abandoned for twenty years to the invasions of vegetation, it had become obstructed by inextricable thicket of underwood, and the trace of a footpath or a passage would be sought for in vain. When they left the deep bed of the Nyad, which was filled with roaring water, Nick Deck stopped to take his bearings. The castle was no longer visible. It would only appear again beyond the curtain of force, which stood in rows one above the other on the lower slopes of the mountain, an arrangement common to the whole orographic system of the Carpathians. As there was no landmark, the direction was not easily made out. It could only be arrived at from the position of the sun, whose rays were lighting up the distant crests in the southwest. You see, Forrester, said the doctor, you see there is not even a road, or rather, no more road. There will be one, said Nick Deck. That's easy to say, Nick. And easy to do, Patak. You are resolved, then? The forester was content to reply by an affirmative gesture, 
and started off towards the trees. The doctor had a strong inclination to retrace his steps, but his companion, happening to turn around, gave him such a determined look that he thought it better not to remain behind. Dr. Patak then conceived another hope. Nick Deck might get lost amid this labyrinth of woods where his duties had not yet called him. But he reckoned without that marvelous scent, that professional instinct, that animal aptitude, so to speak, which takes notice of the least indications, projections of branches in such and such directions, irregularities of the ground, colors of the bark, hues of the mosses as they are exposed to different winds. Nick Deck was a perfect master of his trade, and practiced it with too much sagacity to go astray even in localities unknown to him. He was worthy to be ranked with Leatherstocking or Chingachgook in the land of Cooper. But the crossing of this zone of trees was not free from real difficulties. Elms, beeches, a few of those maples known as false plains, mighty oaks, occupied the first line up to the line of the birches, pines, and spruces, massed on the high shoulders of the call to the left. Magnificent were these trees with their powerful stems, their boughs warm with the new sap, their thick leafage intermingling to form a roof of verdure which the sun's rays could not pierce. By stooping beneath the lower branches, a passage was relatively easy, but many were the obstacles on the surface of the ground, and much work was needed to clear them away, to get through the nettles and briars, to avoid the thousands of thorns that clung to them at the least touch. Nick Deck was not a man to become anxious about these matters, and, providing he got through the wood, he did not worry himself about a few scratches. The advance, however, under such conditions was necessarily slow, and that was regrettable, for Nick Deck and Dr. Patak wished to reach the castle in the afternoon, in order that they might return to Worst before night. Hatchet in hand, the forester worked at clearing a passage through these thick thorn bushes, bristling with vegetable bayonets, in which the foot met a rugged soil, hammocky, broken, with roots or stumps to stumble over when it did not sink in a swampy bed of dead leaves, which the wind had never swept away. Myriads of pods shot off like fulminating peas to the great alarm of the doctor, who started back at the crackle and came again when some twig would catch on his vest like a claw that wished to keep him. No, poor man, he was not at all comfortable. But now he dared not return alone, and he had to make an effort to keep up with his intractable companion. Occasionally, capricious clearings appeared in the forest. A shower of light would penetrate it. A couple of black storks, disturbed in their solitude, escaped from the higher branches and flew off with powerful strokes of the wing. The crossing of these clearings made the advance still more fatiguing. In them were piled up enormous masses of trees blown down by the storm or fallen from old age, as if the axe of the woodsman had given them a death stroke. There lay enormous trunks eaten into with decay, which no tool would ever cut into billets, and no wagon ever carried to the bed of the Wallachian sill. Faced by these obstacles, which were difficult to clear and at times impossible to turn, Nick Deck and his companions had no easy time of it. If the young forester, active, supple, vigorous, managed well, the doctor with his short legs, his large corporation, breathless and exhausted, could not save himself from occasional falls, and Nick had to come to his assistance. You will see, Nick, that I shall end by breaking one of my limbs, he said. You will patch it up if you do. Come, Forrester, be reasonable. We need not strive against the impossible. But Nick Deck was already on in front, and the doctor, obtaining no reply, hastened to rejoin him. Were they in the right direction to come out in front of the castle? They would have been puzzled to prove it, but as the ground was on the rise all the time, they must be reaching the edge of the forest, and they arrived there at three o'clock in the afternoon. Beyond, up to the plateau of the Orgal extended the curtain of green trees, much more scattered the further they were up the mountain. The naiad appeared among the rocks either because it had curved to the northwest, or because Nick Deck had struck off obliquely towards it. 
The young forester was thus assured he had made a good course, for the brook took its rise in the Orgal Plateau. Nick Deck could not refuse the doctor an hour's rest on the bank of the torrent. Besides, the stomach claimed its due as well as the limbs. The wallets were well furnished. Rakiao filled the doctor's flask as well as Nick's. Besides, water, fresh and limpid, filtered amid the pebbles below, and flowed a few paces off. What more could they desire? They had lost much. They must repair the loss. Since their departure, the doctor had scarcely had the leisure to talk with Nick Deck, who had been in front of him all the time. But he made up for lost time when they were seated on the bank of the Naiad. If one was not talkative, the other fully made up for it, and we need not be astonished if the questions were prolix and the answers brief. Let us talk a little, Forrester, and talk seriously, said the doctor. I am listening to you, replied Nick Deck. I think we halted here to recover our strength. Nothing could be more correct. Before returning to Worst? No, before going to the castle. But Nick, we've been walking for six hours, and we are hardly halfway. That shows we have no time to lose. But we shall not reach the castle before night. And as I imagine, Forrester, you will not be mad enough to run any risks until you have had a clear view of it. We shall have to wait for daylight. We will wait for daylight. And so you will not give up this project, which has no common sense in it? No. What? Here we are exhausted, wanting a good table and a good room, and a good bed and a good room, and you're going to pass the night in the open air? Yes, if any obstacle prevents us from penetrating into the castle. And if there is no obstacle, we will sleep in the rooms in the dungeon. The rooms in the dungeon, exclaimed Dr. Patak. Do you think, Forrester, that I shall ever consent to spend a whole night inside that cursed castle? Certainly, unless you prefer to stay outside alone. Alone, Forrester? That was not in the bargain, and if we were to separate, I would rather start at once and go back to the village. It was in the bargain that you would follow me into the castle. In the day, yes. In the night, no. Well, you can go if you like, but take care you do not get lost in the thickets. Lost. That was what troubled the doctor. Abandoned to himself, unaccustomed to these interminable circuits in the place of forests, he felt he was incapable of finding the way back to worst. Besides, to be alone when night fell, a very dark night perhaps, to descend the slopes of the hill at the risk of collapsing in the bottom of a ravine, that certainly was not agreeable to him. He was freed from having to enter the castle when the sun was down, and if the forester persisted, he had better follow him up to the enclosure. But the doctor made a last effort to stop his companion. You know well, my dear Nick, he continued, that I will never consent to separate from you. If you persist in going to the castle, I would not allow you to go there alone. Well spoken, Dr. Patak. I think you ought to stick to that. No. One more word, Nick. If it is night when we arrive, promise me not to try to enter the castle. What I promised you, Doctor, is not to go back one footstep until I have discovered what is going on there. What is going on there, Forrester? said Dr. Patak, shrugging his shoulders. But what do you want to go on there? I know nothing, and if I have made up my mind to know, I will know. But shall we ever reach this devil's castle? asked the doctor, whose arguments were exhausted. To judge by the difficulty we have had up to now, and the time it has taken us to get through the place of forts, the day will end before we are in sight of the wall. I do not think so, said Nick Deck. In the higher ranges, the pines have no such thickets as do the elms or maples or beeches. But the ground is rough. What does that matter if it is not impractical? But I believe that bears are met with on the outskirts of the plateau. I have my gun, and you have your pistol to defend yourself with, Doctor. But if night falls, we will be lost in the darkness. No, for we now have a guide, which guide will, I hope, not leave us any more. A guide, exclaimed the doctor, and he rose abruptly to cast an anxious look around him. Yes, said Nick, and this guide is the naiad. 
we have only to go up to the right bank to reach the very crest of the plateau where it takes its source. I think we shall be at the castle gate in two hours, if we get on the road without delay. In two hours, if not in six, replied the doctor. Are you ready? Already, Nick, already? Why, our halt has only lasted a few minutes. A few minutes which make a good half hour. For the last time, are you ready? Ready, when my legs are like lumps of lead? You know well enough, Nick Deck, my legs are not Forrester's legs. My feet are swollen in my boots, and it's cruel to make me follow you. Ah, you annoy me, Patak. You can go back alone if you like. Pleasant journey to you. And Nick rose. For the love of God, Forrester, cried Dr. Patak, listen to me. Listen to your foolery? It is already late. Why not remain here? Why not encamp under the shelter of these trees? We can start at daylight and have all the morning to reach the plateau. Doctor, replied Nick Deck, I tell you again, it is my intention to spend the night in the castle. No, cried the doctor. No, you shall not do it, Nick. I will stop you. You? I will cling to you. I will drag you back. I will thrash you if necessary. The unfortunate doctor did not know what he was saying. As to Nick Deck, he did not even reply. Putting his arm through the gun strap, he started to go up the night. Wait, wait, cried the doctor piteously. What a fiend of a man. One moment. My limbs are stiff. My joints will not work. But they soon had to work, for the doctor had to trot along on his little legs to catch up to the forester, who never looked back. It was four o'clock. The solar rays just tipped the crest of the plaza, which intercepted them, and by an oblique reflection lighted up the higher branches of the pine forest. Nick Deck had cause to hurry, for the woods below were growing dark at the decline of day. Of a different character were the higher forests, which consisted mainly of the commoner alpine species. Instead of being deformed and twisted and gnarled, the stems were straight and upright and far apart, and bare of branches for fifty or sixty feet from their roots, and then their evergreen verdure spread out like a roof. There was little brushwood or entanglement at their base, but the long roots crept along the ground as if it were snakes grown torpid with the cold. The ground was carpeted with close, yellowish moss scattered over with dry twigs, and dotted with cones which crackled under the feet. The slope was rough and furrowed with crystalline rocks, the sharp edges of which made themselves felt through the thickest leather. For a quarter of a mile, the passage through the pine wood was difficult. To climb these blocks required a suppleness of vigor and a sureness of foot, which Dr. Patak could no longer claim. Nick Deck would have got through in an hour if he had been there alone, but it took him three with the hindrance of his companion, whom he had to stop to attend to and to help him over rocks too high for his little legs. The doctor had but one fear, a terrible fear, that of being left alone in these gloomy solitudes. However, the slopes became more painful to climb, the trees began to get thinner and thinner on the place of ridge. They were now in isolated clumps and of a small size. Between these clumps could be seen the ranges of mountains in the background, with their outlines still traceable in the evening mist. The torrent of the Naiad, which the forester had continued to follow, was now not larger than a brook and rose not so very far off. A few hundred feet above the last folds of the ground lay the rounded plateau of Orgal, crowned by the castle buildings. Nick Deck at length reached the plateau after a final effort which reduced the doctor to the state of an inert mass. The poor man had not the strength to drag himself twenty yards further, and he fell like the ox before the axe of the butcher. Nick Deck hardly felt the fatigue of this painful ascent. Erect, motionless, he devoured with his gaze this castle of the Carpathians he had never before been so near. Before his eyes lay a crenellated wall, defended by a deep ditch, the only drawbridge of which was drawn up against the gate, surrounded by a ring of stone. Around the wall, on the plateau, all was bare and silent. In the twilight, the mass of castle buildings was confusedly distinguishable. There was no one visible on either wall or dungeon, nor on the circular terrace. 
Not a trace of smoke curled around the vein. Well, Forrester, said Dr. Batak, are you convinced that it is possible to cross the ditch, lower the drawbridge, and open the gate? Nick Deck did not reply. He saw that it would be necessary to halt before the castle walls. Amid the darkness, how could he descend into the ditch and climb the slope so as to enter the wall? Evidently, the best thing to do was to wait for the coming dawn and work in broad daylight. And that was what it was decided to do, to the great annoyance of the forester and the extreme satisfaction of the doctor. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 The thin crescent of the moon, like a silver sickle, disappeared almost as soon as the sun set. A few clouds rising in the west soon extinguished the last gleams of twilight. Darkness gradually rose from below and covered all. The ring of mountains was blotted out in obscurity, and the castle soon disappeared beneath the pall of night. If the night promised to be very dark, there was nothing to indicate that it would be troubled by any atmospheric disturbance, rain, or storm. And this was fortunate for Nick Deck and his companion, who were about to encamp in the open air. There was no clump of trees on this barren plateau of Orgal. Here and there were a few shrubs, which afforded no shelter against the nocturnal cold. There were rocks in plenty, others in such a state of equilibrium that the slightest push would have sent them rolling down into the firwoods. The only plant that grew in profusion on the rocky soil was a thistle known as Russian thorn, whose seeds, says L.S.A. Recluse, were carried in their coats by the Muscovite horses, a present of cheerful conquest which the Russians gave the Transylvanians. A search was made for a more comfortable place in which to pass the night, and which would afford some shelter against the fall in temperature which is remarkable in these altitudes. We have more than chances enough to be miserable, murmured Dr. Patak. Are you not satisfied then? asked Nick Deck. Certainly not. What a splendid place to catch a good cold, or the rheumatism, which I do not know how I shall ever get cured of. A very artless confession on the part of the old quarantine officer. How he regretted his comfortable little house at worst, with its room so snug and its bed so well furnished with pillows and counterpane. Among the stones in the Orgal Plateau, one had to be selected whose position offered the best shelter against the southwest wind, which was beginning to freshen. This was what Nick Deck did, and soon the doctor joined him behind a large rock which was as flat as a table on its upper surface. This stone was one of those stone benches amid the scabuses and saxifrages which are frequently met with at the turnings of the road in Wallachia. While the traveler sits on them, he can quench his thirst with the water contained in the vase placed on them, and which is every day renewed by the country people. When Baron Rodolphe de Gortz lived in the castle, this bench bore a bowl which his family servants never left empty. But now it was dirty and worn and covered with green mosses, and the least shock would have reduced it to dust. At the end of the seat rose a granite shaft, the remains of an ancient cross, nothing being left of the arms, although a half-effaced groove showed where they had been. Dr. Patak, being a strong-minded man, was unable to admit that this cross would protect him against supernatural apparitions. But by an anomaly common to a good many of the incredulous, although he did not believe in God, he was not very far from believing in the devil. In his heart, he believed the chort was not far off. He it was that haunted the castle, and neither the closed gate, the raised drawbridge, the lofty wall, nor the deep ditch would keep him from coming out, if the fancy took him, to come and twist both their necks. And when the doctor saw that he had to spend a whole night under these conditions, he shuddered with terror. No, it was too much to require of a human creature, and it would be more than the most energetic of circumstances he could bear. And then an idea came to him tardily, an idea he had not thought of before he left worst. It was Thursday evening, and on that day, the people of the district, the country people, were careful not to go out after sundown. Thursday they knew to be the day of evil deeds, 
Their legends told them that if they ventured abroad on that day, they ran the risk of meeting with some evil spirit, and so no one moved about on the roads and byways after nightfall. And here was Dr. Patak, not only away from home, but close to a haunted castle, two or three miles from the village, and here he would have to stop until the dawn came, if it ever came again. In truth, this was simply tempting the devil. Deep in these thoughts, the doctor saw the forester carefully take out of his bag a piece of cold meat after having a good drink from his flask. The best thing, it occurred to him, was to do likewise, and he did so. A leg of a goose, a thick slice of bread, the whole well moistened with rakiao, was the least he could take to revive his strength. But if that calmed his hunger, it did not calm his fears. Now let us sleep, said Nick Deck as soon as he had put his bag at the foot of the stone. Sleep, Forrester? Good night, Doctor. Good night. That is easy to wish, but I am afraid it will not end well. Nick Deck, being in no humor for conversation, made no reply. Accustomed by his vocation to sleep amid the woods, he threw himself down close to the stone seat and was soon in a deep sleep. And the doctor could but grumble between his teeth when he heard his companion breathing at regular intervals. As for him, it was impossible for him for some minutes to deaden his senses of hearing and seeing. In spite of his fatigue, he continued to see and to listen. His brain was a prey to those extravagant visions which are due to the troubles of insomnia. What was he looking for in the depths of darkness? The hazy shapes of the objects which surrounded him, the scattered clouds across the sky, the almost imperceptible mass of the castle? The rocks on the Orgal Plateau seemed to be moving in a sort of infernal saraband, and if they were to crumble on their bases, slip down the slope, roll onto the two adventurers and crush them at the castle gate to which admission was denied them? The unhappy doctor got up. He listened to the noises which are ever present on lofty tablelands. Those disquieting murmurs would seem to whisper and groan and sigh. He heard the Nyctalops fanning the rocks with frenzied wing, the Striges in their nocturnal flight, and two or three pairs of funereal owls whose hooting echoed like a cry of pain. Then his muscles contracted all at once, and his body trembled, bathed in icy perspiration. In this way, the long hours went by until midnight. If the doctor had been able to talk, to exchange but a few words now and then, to give free course to his recriminations, he would have been less afraid. But Nick Deck slept and slept in deep slumber. Midnight, a terrible hour for all, the hour of apparitions, the hour of evil deeds. What could it be? The doctor had just got up again. He was asking himself if he were awake or if he were suffering from a nightmare. Overhead, he thought he saw... No, he really did see the strangest of shapes lighted by a spectral light pass from one horizon to the other, rise, fall, and drift down with the clouds. They looked like monsters, dragons with serpents' tails, hippogriffs with huge wings, gigantic krakens, enormous vampires, fighting to seize him in their claws or swallow him in their jaws. Then, everything appeared to be in motion on the Orgal Plateau, the rocks, the trees at its edge, and very distinctly a clanging at short intervals reached his ear. The bell, he murmured, the castle bell. Yes, it was indeed the bell of the old chapel, and not that of the church at Vulcan, which the wind would have borne in the opposite direction. And now the strokes became more hurried. The hand that struck no longer told a funereal knell. No, it was an alarm, whose urgent strokes were awakening the echoes of the Transylvanian frontier. As he listened to these dismal vibrations, Dr. Patak was seized with a convulsive fear, an insurmountable anguish, an irresistible terror which thrilled his whole body with cold shudderings. But the forester had been awakened by the alarming clanging of the bell. He rose, while Dr. Patak seemed as if beside himself. Nick Deck listened, and his eyes tried to pierce the deep darkness which overhung the castle. 
That bell, that bell, repeated Dr. Patak. It is the chort that is ringing it. Decidedly, the poor, terrified doctor was thinking more than ever of the devil. The forester remained motionless and did not reply. Suddenly, a series of roars, as if from some huge animal at a harbor's mouth, broke forth in tumultuous undulations. For a long distance around, the air resounded with his deafening growl. Then a light darted from the center of the dungeon, an intense light, from which leapt flashes of penetrating clearness and blinding coruscations. From what could come this powerful light, the irradiations of which spread in long sheets over the Orgal Plateau? From what furnace came the photogenic stream, which seemed to embrace the rocks at the same time as it bathed them in a strange lividity? Nick, Nick, exclaimed the doctor, look at me, am I a corpse like you? In fact, they had both assumed a corpse-like look. Their faces were pallid, their eyes seemed to have gone, the orbits being apparently empty. Their cheeks were grayish-green, like the mosses which the legends say grow on the heads of those that are hanged. Nick Deck was astonished at what he saw, at what he heard. Dr. Patak was in the last stage of fright. His muscles retracted, his skin bristled, his pupils dilated, his body was seized with titanic frigidity. As the poet of the contemplations remarks, he breathed in terror. A minute, a minute or more, lasted this terrifying phenomenon. When the strange light gradually went out, the groaning ceased, and the Orgal Plateau resumed its silence and obscurity. Neither of the men thought any more of sleep. The doctor, overwhelmed with stupor, the forester upright against the stone seat, awaited the return of the dawn. What did Nick Deck think of these things, which were evidently so supernatural to his eyes? Were they not enough to shake his resolution? Did he still intend to pursue this reckless adventure? Certainly he had said that he would enter the castle, that he would explore the dungeon. But was it not enough for him to come to its insurmountable wall, to have evoked the anger of its guardian spirits, and provoked this trouble of the elements? Would he be reproached with not having kept to his promise if he returned to the village without having urged his folly to the end in entering this diabolic castle? Suddenly the doctor threw himself upon him, seized him by the hand, and strove to drag him away, saying in a hoarse voice, Come, come. No, said Nick Deck, and in turn he caught hold of Dr. Patak, who fell at this last effort. At last the night ended, and such was their mental state that neither Forster nor doctor knew the time that elapsed until daybreak. They remembered nothing of the hours which preceded the first rays of the morning. At that moment a rosy streak appeared on the crest of Pering, on the eastern horizon, on the other side of the valley of the two sills. The faint white rays of dawn dispersed over the depth of the sky, and striped it as if it were a zebra skin. Nick Deck turned toward the castle. He saw it grow clearer and clearer. The dungeon revealed itself from the high mists which came floating down the Vulcan slope. The chapel, the galleries, the outer walls emerged from the nocturnal mists, and there on the corner bastion appeared the beech tree, with its leaves rustling in the easterly breeze. There was no change in the ordinary aspect of the castle. The bell was as motionless as the old feudal weather vane. No smoke arose from the dungeon chimneys, and the barred windows remained obstinately closed. Above the platform, in the higher zones of the sky, a few birds were flying and gently calling to each other. Nick Deck turned to look at the principal entrance to the castle. The drawbridge up against the bay closed the postern between the two stone pillars which bore the arms of the barons of Gortz. Had the forester resolved to continue this adventurous expedition to the end? Yes, and his resolution had not been shaken by the events of the night. A thing said was a thing done. That was his motto as we know. Neither the mysterious voice which had threatened him personally in the saloon of the King Matthias, nor the inexplicable phenomenon of sound and light he had just witnessed, would stop him from entering the castle. An hour would be enough for him to hurry through the galleries, visit the keep, 
and then, having fulfilled this promise, he would return to Worst where he would arrive during the morning. As to Dr. Patak, he was now only an inert machine, without either the strength to resist or to insist. He would go wherever he was driven. If he fell, it would be impossible to lift him again. The terrors of the night had reduced him to complete imbecility, and he made no observation when the forester pointed to the castle and said, Come on. And yet the day had returned, and a doctor could have gone back to worse without fear of losing himself in the place of forests. He had no reason to wish to remain with Nick Deck, and if he did not abandon his companion and return to the village, it was that he was no longer conscious of the state of affairs, and was merely a body without a mind. And so, when the forester dragged him toward the slope of the counterscarp, he made no resistance. But was it possible to enter the castle otherwise than by the gate? That was what Nick Deck endeavored to discover. The wall showed no breach, no falling in, no excavation giving access to the interior. It was indeed surprising that these old walls were in such a state of preservation, but this was doubtless due to their thickness. To climb to the line of crenellations which crowned them appeared to be impractical, as they rose some forty feet above the ditch, and it seemed as though Nick Deck, at the very moment of reaching the castle of the Carpathians, was to fail owing to insurmountable obstacles. Fortunately, or very unfortunately for him, there stood above the posture in a sort of loophole, or rather an embrasure, through which formerly pointed the muzzle of a culverin. By making use of one of the chains of the drawbridge, which hung down to the ground, it would not be very difficult for an active, vigorous man to hoist himself up to this embrasure. Its width was sufficient to allow of a man to pass, unless it was barred on the inside, and Nick Deck could probably manage to get through it within the castle. The forester saw at once that this was the only way open to him, and that is why, Followed by the unconscious doctor, he went obliquely down the inner slope of the counterscarp. They were soon at the bottom of the ditch, which was strewn with stones amid the thickets of wild plants. They could hardly find a place to step. They were not sure that myriads of venomous beasts did not swarm in the herbage of this humid excavation. In the middle of the ditch, and parallel to the wall, was the ancient trench, now nearly dry, which they can just stride across. Nick Deck, having lost nothing of his mental or bodily energy, went on coolly and quietly, while the doctor followed him mechanically, like an animal at the end of a string. After crossing the trench, the forester went along the base of the curtain for some twenty yards, and stopped underneath the gate close to one end of the chain of the drawbridge. By the help of his hands and feet, he could thence easily reach the line of stonework that jutted out just below the embrasure. Evidently, Nick did not intend to compel the doctor to take part with him in this escalade. So heavy a man could not have done so. He therefore contented himself with giving him a vigorous shake to make him understand and then advised him to wait without moving at the bottom of the ditch. Then Nick Deck commenced to climb the chain, and this was merely child's play for this mountaineer's muscles. But when the doctor found himself alone, the true positions of things, to a certain extent, recurred to him. He understood, he looked, he saw his companion already suspended a dozen feet from the ground, and in a voice choked with the bitterness of fear, he cried, Stop! Nick! Stop! The forester heard him not. Come! Come, or I will go away, cried the doctor. Go then, said Nick. And he continued to raise himself along the chain of the drawbridge. Dr. Patak, in a paroxysm of terror, would have gone back again up the slope of the counterscarp so as to reach the crest of the Orga Plateau and return full speed to worst. But, prodigy to which the wonders of the preceding night were as nothing, he could not move. His feet were held fast as if they had been seized in the jaws of a vice. Could he place one before the other? No. They stuck by the heels and soles of his boots. Had the doctor been taken in a trap? He was too much frightened to look, but it seemed as though he was held by the nails in his boots. Whatever it was, the poor man was immovable. He was fixed to the ground. Not having strength to cry out, he stretched out his hands in despair, 
It looked as though he sought to be rescued from the embrace of some Tarrasque hidden in the bowels of the earth. Meanwhile, Nick Deck had got as high as the postern, and was placing his hand on the ironwork in which the hinges of the drawbridge were embedded. A cry of pain escaped him, then throwing himself back as if he had been struck by lightning, he slipped along the chain, which a fatal instinct made him clutch and roll to the bottom of the ditch. The voice truly said that misfortune would come to me, he murmured, and then he lost consciousness. End of chapter 6 